Good morning. Today's scripture reading can be found on page six of, the, of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open countryside. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Jacob had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Jacob, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Jacob, excuse me, Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, some son of Jerob Bisheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper, an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. 
The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Well, we are continuing in our study of the life of David in all its beauty and brokenness, in all the glory and the gall. Let's take a look at this story together, but first, let's stop and pray. Pray with me, please. Jesus, please come and interrupt our hearts, interrupt the heart's of ours that tend to be full of defense mechanisms, justifying and rationalizing ourselves, uh, telling us we're okay, telling us that we need a little bit of you, but not too much of you. Uh, We need a little bit of help, but we're not that desperate. Uh, Help us to become once again in our hearts desperate for your mercy. Help us to be hungry for your grace. Help us to know just how deeply we need Jesus, that he might shine more gloriously to us, that his grace might be more satisfying to us, and that you, most of all, might be honored before us. This is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When a public figure really blows it in this town, we call it a scandal And we treat it like sport, don't we? Unfortunately, it happens often enough that it's easy to get cynical. But when the Bible tells about the raw and ugly truth about someone's so-called fall from grace, there's not a hint of cynicism. There's no eye-rolling or finger-wagging. One of the reasons is that the Bible always gives hope, always gives hope for people who make a mess of their lives. There's hope for you today. Another reason is this. The Bible's stories about brokenness are never stories about them or him or her, but always about you and me. The raw and ugly truth about me. Do you see yourself in this story? David really, really blew it, didn't he? It's one of the low points in the entire Bible, and without a doubt, one of the lowest points in David's life personally. He was, after all, the greatest king of Israel. As we've seen many, many times over the past several weeks, his life foreshadowed the life of the Messiah. David was a personal preview of Jesus Himself, he was called a man after God's own heart. So what happened? Here's what happened. Sin. This is a story about nobody's favorite topic. 
nobody's favorite word, sin. But it's an important story to hear, to know, to see in our own lives. So let's listen to the story again. David was hanging out on the rooftop deck of his palace one evening. And he happened to notice a woman bathing. And instead of moving on with his eyes, more importantly, moving on with his heart, he sent a servant to find out more about her. See, David Googles her. You see, when temptation rises, sin doesn't run, sin does research. A toe is in the water. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, came the report. So she has a name. She's a person. And she's someone else's daughter and someone else's wife. But David didn't care, did he? Sin makes everyone else worth trash to you. And whose wife did that messenger say she was? Uriah the Hittite. What? Who? Uriah the Hittite. We learn more about him towards the end of 2 Samuel. Chapter 23 provides a list of elite men. An elite group of soldiers who were called David's mighty Men, these were the best of the best in Israel. They were like Medal of Honor winners from among Israel's equivalent of the Army Rangers, the SEALs, and the Secret Service. And if you were to read the 37 names that were listed, you would encounter Asahel, the brother of Joab, Shema, the Herodite, Sibachai, the Hushathite, Hezro, the Carmelite, and so on. And if you kept on reading, here's what you would find at the end of that list. Zelek, the Ammonite. Zaharai, the Berathite, the armor-bearer of Joab, son of Zeruiah. Ira, the Ithrite. Gerib, the Ithrite. And Uriah, the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's mighty warriors, one of 37 of the most skilled, most courageous, most loyal warriors in all of Israel. But in this moment, Uriah was a nobody to David. Uriah who? Because sin makes us disloyal, loyal to no one but ourselves. David sends his me messengers to go get her, we're told in verse 4. Sent messengers, for goodness sakes. I mean, never even got off his own dang throne. He slept with her. 
This was the sin of adultery, of course, willful sexual intimacy with someone besides your own spouse. But as we've seen already, David is running a tab that's a lot longer than that. See, sin makes you run a tab that you can't pay. The woman conceived, we're told, and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant, verse 5. And did you notice how the narrator just calls her the woman? Bathsheba's name isn't mentioned for the rest of the story. The point is, to David, she was just a nameless object, no longer a person. And then there was the cover-up, this really pitiful attempt to pass off the newly conceived child as Uriah's. See, because sin always makes you want to hide. How might David set the stage for a wonderful romantic evening between Uriah and Bathsheba? Well, so the king sends for Uriah, who's on the battlefield, of course, doing his duty, right? David starts with some small talk, See, because sin always manipulates. Ask him how the war is going. It's interesting. We're not told anything about Uriah's reply. It's almost as if David wasn't even paying attention to what Uriah was saying. Wah, 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 wah. Because in this moment, David actually didn't really care about success on the battlefield. All he cared about was the success of this great cover-up. Twice, David tries to get Uriah to, to just take a break, relax, go home. Once, he even sent Uriah a gift, we're told. Maybe it was some wine and cheese, maybe some flowers, you know, so, something to set the mood. The second time, David uh, took matters into his own hands. He ate and he personally dined with Uriah, trying to get him more uninhibited. But each time... Uriah, like a soldier on the night watch, refused. He slept at the entrance to the palace with all the other king's servants and refused to go down to his own house. And when David asked Uriah why he refused to go home, this is what Uriah replied in verse 11. The ark and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. I mean, this is amazing. The ark always accompanied Israel's army in battle. It was a symbol of God's presence. It's the first thing that Uriah mentions. Why did Uriah refuse to go home? Because he was fiercely loyal to God and fiercely loyal to his own men. I mean, in this moment, he could not be more different than King David. He, he was sort of the anti-David, dutiful dignified, self-sacrificing. 
You, you can even see David sort of getting frustrated with Uriah's stubborn loyalty. You ever find yourself getting frustrated, wishing someone had less integrity so that you can get your way? Sin makes you mad when other people do the right thing. David gets more desperate, more and more desperate. He sends Uriah back to combat with a letter to Joab, his commander. Uriah doesn't know it, but he's carrying his own death sentence. Here's what the letter reads according to verse 15. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. This is, of course, an evil abuse of power. David is out to kill Uriah. Of course, David's trying to do so while hiding behind others because sin always makes you a coward, always. David got his way. In verse 17, we're told Uriah the Hittite died and the adulterer became a murderer. You know, when Joab reports to David about this battle in verses 18 through 24, you know, we get this clear sense that in order to pull off this stunt, Joab actually pushed his men unadvisedly close to the enemy wall to ensure that Uriah would be killed, but he did so against established military precedent and practice, according to verse 21. He took an approach, actually, that was detrimental to their true military mission. According to tradition, 17 other additional soldiers were killed unnecessarily along with Uriah, all for the sake of covering up the mess that David made. Do you see it? Sin always sacrifices others. David's heart is hard as a responds to the report, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. In other words, this is just the way war works. Don't let this upset you. Actually, that phrase in the Hebrew can also be rendered, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Is David consoling Joab? or himself and his conscience. It's not clear. Don't worry. This was the best for everyone. Do you hear it? Sin is not only evil. It always rationalizes evil. Sin hardens your heart. We're told in verse 27, David had Uriah's wife brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And as the story comes to a close, you get the sense that David has sort of moved on with his life. The cover-up, it seems, was successful. David was in the clear, except he wasn't. The narrator adds one final comment, but 
the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And that can also be rendered, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's a clear echo of David's own hard-hearted words earlier. See, even if David wouldn't let his evil deeds be evil in his own eyes, they were evil in God's eyes because sin always deceives us but never deceives God. Man. I mean, I got to tell you, it was something. Just taking in this story this past week, preparing this for us. Because there's so much more here, isn't there? So much more here about the contours and the dynamics and the nature of evil in our own hearts just than simply this story of infidelity, which of course it is, but it's so much more. It's in fact an amazing story that invites us to consider our own broken and sinful hearts. Will you dare, will you dare today to do that? And maybe you say, well, I haven't committed adultery lately, but have you perhaps developed an unhealthy emotional bond with someone besides your spouse? Or have you been indulging in pornography lately, an addictive form of the adultery of the heart and of the mind, treating people that are made in God's image like nameless objects? Or perhaps have you been sleeping with someone that you're not married to? Giving intimacy, the the, the most vulnerable places of yourself, while withholding every other form of commitment and promise because it was all meant to go together in a bundle of promised oneness, dear friends. And yet perhaps you're taking something that belongs not only to them, but even perhaps to their future spouse. We say, well, I haven't committed adultery lately, but like David on his rooftop, have you been coveting lately? Wanting someone that, something that doesn't belong to you, someone's house or someone's success, maybe their happiness. Uh, like David, have you taken something that doesn't belong to you? Maybe not someone's spouse, but maybe credit for another person's worth? Have you betrayed a loyal friend, even using their loyalty towards you against them, like David did to Uriah? Like David, have you abused the power or authority God has given to you? Maybe pushing a kid around school just because you're physically bigger than they or As a boss or supervisor, maybe throwing someone under the bus just to cover up your own mistakes. You say, well, I haven't murdered anyone lately, but have you longed for life without a person? Someone who's been getting in the way of your relationships or maybe your success. Have you basically wished that they were dead, killing them in your heart? Like David's sacrificing of his soldiers to get rid of his problems, have you, have we made other people the collateral damage of our selfishness? Whether if it's your kids overhearing your violent words towards your spouse, 
or maybe your roommate having to live with someone who's only thinking of herself all the time. Do you see yourself in this passage? I sure do. I sure do. It's a troubling passage to carry around in my heart all week. I mean, you guys just sit here for a couple minutes. I take this the whole week, you know. But it's good to be confronted with the evidence of sin in my life in order that we might more richly experience the grace of God in our lives. This story does shed light on specific areas of sin in our lives, but it also offers, I think, three lessons about the the nature of sin. First, this passage teaches us about the ugliness of sin. I mean, did you read or hear this story and just get frustrated with David? What are you doing? Because one thing that hits you in this passage is just how self-centered, self-absorbed, self-obsessed David is being. And it's ugly. The way he manipulates, the way he uses people, the way he's always and only thinking about himself. But here's the thing. Aren't we all just like him? The old Puritans used to talk about the odiousness of sin. Maybe that's a word you can take with you this week. The odiousness of sin. Why does sensing the ugliness of sin matter? Well, Christian author Jen Wilkin, I think, puts it well and helpfully. She says, because you will never turn from a sin you don't hate. Dear friends, do you not only see your sin, do you see the ugliness of your sin? Secondly, we learn about the relentlessness of sin. There's a song that my kids have on on a CD that we listen to in the car all the time. And it's a song called Tell It to Jesus, and it's about being honest about our sins. And the chorus actually goes like this, tell it to Jesus, he already knows, tell it to Jesus before it grows. We talk about that sometimes in the car. The the words, the lyrics have been teaching my kids the same thing that I think this passage is teaching us. Sin grows. For David, a, a glance became a gaze, became the googling of the girl's name, and the rest was history, right? There's the violation, and then there was the cover-up. Because sn- sin snowballs. Uh, sin multiplies, especially as it seeks to justify and protect and defend itself. Sin grows. Give it an inch and it will go a mile deep into your soul. We like to believe that we can manage the power of our selfishness. You know, I'll just keep it into this little corner of my life over here and it'll stay there. We have no such power apart from the grace of God. As an old theologian, John Owen once wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's because sin grows. It's relentless in its commitment to devour you. Third, we learn not only about the ugliness and the relentlessness of sin, we also learn about the depth of sin. Why did David fall so 
hard, someone says, because he obviously had a lusty heart. Okay, well, maybe that's true, but this passage actually points to something greater, something deeper going on in David's heart. I wonder if you noticed it at the beginning of the passage. Did you notice how the narrator introduced this entire story in verse 1, signaling for us that this would frame, this should frame our understanding of what was about to take place. In the spring, we're told, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. You see, David should have gone into battle with his men. That was not only the expectation of Israel's kings, it was also the normal practice of kings in the ancient Near East, this verse tells us. But David remained in Jerusalem. David stayed at home. While his men were getting killed, David was killing time. That David's failure began on his rooftop was also probably not insignificant either. As Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin made, she makes this fascinating comment here. From his vantage point high above the homes of his citizens, the king is master of all he surveys. You see, David was done in his heart, done with being a king in the crowds, in among the people. He had started like that, but now he started to like being above and beyond. He would send the people to do his dirty work for him. He would not lay down his life and be a servant to his people. They would now lay down their lives and serve him. This wasn't the David we knew from before, but this is the David that he had become the master of all he surveys. You see, underneath David's adultery was pride. His greatest lust problem was his lust for power. Underneath David's sin of murder was his, king, his sense of kingly entitlement. It's what he started to believe that he deserved. Friends, we need to learn to see and confess not only the sins on the surface of our lives, but also the sins underneath the sins. The deeper sins that drive our sins. My daughter recently started learning how to play checkers. And like all of us, I assume, if you've played checkers, she loves that moment when you finally move your pieces to the other end and you get to yell, king me, king me. And from that point on, you have the power to move in any direction that you want, to do whatever you want all over the board. I mean, who among us doesn't have a heart that doesn't want to shout, king me? And who doesn't feel entitled to move on the board of life any which direction I want? I'm the king, after all. 
pride, the lust for power, the royal recognition and reputation, is that the sin underneath your sins? Or is there another? Maybe the arrogance that's underneath your defensiveness. Or maybe it's the love of control that's underneath your lying. Can we learn to see, to detect, to confess, to be set free from the sins underneath our sins? Because this passage teaches us about the ugliness of sin and the relentlessness of sin, but also the depths of sin. Dear friends, we really are stuck when left to ourselves. We really have no ability to love as we ought, neither God nor our neighbor, and not even our most loyal friends. Eventually, David sees his sin. Do you see yours? The good news is that David will repent, turn from his sin. David will find forgiveness. That's the focus of the next chapter, which we'll look at after Easter. But today's passage is a, it's a sobering story, isn't it? It actually closes with David still hard-hearted, still unrepentant. It's true. The focus of this story is his sin. But do you notice how the story ends? The very last word in this story is the word Lord. And it's printed in English Bibles in all capital letters because the Hebrew word behind it is God's covenant name, his personal name, Yahweh in the Hebrew. It's the name that symbolized God's personal commitment to saving sinners. Here's what God said his name revealed about himself when he declared it in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord. What? The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, this nightmare ends with a glimpse of God's grace, his compassion, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. And it's a grace, of course, that we see most clearly in Jesus. You know, like Uriah, Jesus was unshakable in his loyalty, unshakable in his commitment to God and others. You know, like Uriah, he was betrayed by those he called friends. Like Uriah, Jesus carried his own death sentence, yet not in the form of a letter, but in the form of a cross. And like Uriah, it was because of sin that Jesus died, our sin. He took the arrow of God's wrath and judgment to the heart of his soul, in our place, for our salvation, so that your and my sins might be forgiven. Will you receive 
afresh, or perhaps for the first time, the forgiveness of God today. Because your sin is great. My sin is great too. But listen to this. But God's great grace is greater than all our sins. Hallelujah. No matter how badly you've screwed up or how frequently you keep screwing up, no one is beyond the reach of God's love. Not even David. Not even you. Not even me. Yes, the theme of this story is sin. But here's the point. Because of Jesus, our sin is never the end of the story. Our God of grace has the last word. The Lord is the last word, literally. It's a truth that Anne Lamott once described so well when she said, Grace bats last. If you embrace this Jesus as the savior of sinners, God's grace is the final word in every story of every sin of your life. Dear friends, your sin is great, but God's great grace is greater than all our sin. Dear friends, even when Sin has been running up the score. Guess what? Grace bats last. Let's pray. And we need your grace. And we need to know and see how much we need your grace. But thanks be to God that grace abounds and abounds and abounds. We thank you for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.